Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. I want to thank our witness for testifying today. Five years after US, the U.S. decision to intervene in Libya, which I think most of us, including our witness, would agree uh, was a textbook case and not what not to do in foreign policy uh, if you look at where we are today. Uh, I'm still wondering what our Libya policy is. I read through the briefings. I know Senator Cardin and others did the same. And, you know, we spend most of our time on foreign policy issues, obviously. And I have to tell you, just looking at the committee memo that was put, to pl put in place by CRS, it, the, the countervailing forces on the ground in Libya are really uh, many and a uh, very, very tough, complex situation uh, that has developed there. Um, I think our hearing today is an attempt to understand what is an achievable outcome in Libya that is in line with U.S. interest and at what cost. Um, and obviously, if we can cause people to come together uh, through the efforts that are underway at present, we really would just be getting back to where we were in 2013. So there's been a lot of time and loss, a lot of lives lost, uh, a lot of backward momentum. As different factions continue to compete across Libya, as ISIS continues to use the chaos to establish an operating base outside Syria, it appears that we are again contemplating providing arms and training to some type of Libyan national security force. Uh, I hope Mr. Weiner can explain to us uh, what lessons the administration uh, has learned from the failure of the last time we tried to develop Libyan security forces and what political progress needs to occur, needs to occur in order for us to try again. To determine the way forward, we need an accurate assessment of Tripoli's ability to govern and what we are doing to help them and what can bring the rival administration in Tobruk to on board with the new government. We have sanctioned Libyan individuals uh, who are hindering the formation of a unity government in the past, but, but are we prepared to do so in the future? For a country with vast oil wealth and thankfully void of widespread sectarian tensions, Libya should become a success story. I think we all are disheartened that in many ways the failure of U.S. policy following the fall of Gaddafi has hindered Libya's progress. With that, I want to thank our special envoy for being here, uh, who I know um, has concerns about the future of Libya. We look forward to your testimony. We thank you for being here today to, to help us understand the way forward. And with that, I'll turn to our ranking, distinguished ranking member, Senator Ben Cardin. Well, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think this hearing is particularly important as to how we proceed in Libya. Uh, and it's complicated. And I, I thank our witness for being here and your service to our country. But in order to counter ISIL in Libya, the United States and others have accelerated efforts to strike at the stronghold and insert while stepping up diplomatic efforts to achieve Libyan unity. On a broad level, this is the right approach. Although I'm pleased to learn that ISIL is now physically on the run, I'm distressed that they continue to make inroads uh, by inspiring people online to commit atrocities as we've seen in our own country in Orlando. But oftentimes, in the rush to beat back the latest terrorist threats, the expediency of counterterrorism actions far outpaces and exceeds our political strategy. And that's a matter of major concern. We want to take action, but we need to know that we can follow up that action with a workable strategy. I fear that we are, if we're not careful, if we do not devote the same amount of time and resources to good governance, democracy, 
promotion and of humanitarian support in Libya, then we will simply be worsening the country's division and repeating past mistakes that we've made elsewhere. If we arm one militia to counter ISIL today, even a militia that is acting under the newly internationally recognized unity government, who knows who will take up arms against us tomorrow? Now, let me be clear. If the administration has information about a threat against the United States, then we have to act. We have to act and do what's safe for our people of our country. Uh, I know this administration is trying its best to support the Government of National Court, or GNA. Three months ago, before this committee, I conveyed the urgency for Libyan national unity. Enhancing GNA's legitimacy is critical for restoring order to the country, bringing prosperity to its people, and helping Libya take its place among the communities of nations. GNA control over all Libya is critical to combating the extremist forces, combating ISIL, and resolving a migrant crisis that has tragically witnessed the drowning of deaths of thousands. We've lost thousands of people that have been trafficked through Libya. Uh, that's one of the casualties of the instability in that country. And yet, while the GNA is doing its best to restore order, the country's political division still festers as spoilers in the eastern part of the country continue to block a vote on approval of GNA. As long as Libya remains a fractured, the terrorist groups like ISIL will thrive and the temptation for greater foreign intervention will only grow. The GNA itself has not requested foreign intervention, and while we can provide training to GNA-controlled units, we cannot fight this fight for them. I think that's a very important point. If and when the U.S. decides to give military equipment and training to Libyan forces, it must be with the full cognizance of who we are giving the support to and the potential for that support later to be turned against the United States. We need to have a clear strategy in Libya. As I said repeatedly before this committee, I am concerned about the open-ended nature of this never-ending war on terror that is pursued without congressional authorization, whether it's waged in Libya, Yemen, Syria, or Iraq. What begins as a small mission to build partners' capacity could morph into something much larger. And all this is based on authorization of U.S. force predating the upheaval in the Arab world, predating the very existence of the Islamic State and even predating U.S. invasion in Iraq more than 13 years ago. As I said earlier, our Libya policy must strike a balance between retrieving security and creating good governance. Libya's core problem is that it is fractured along regional, tribal, and religious lines between the old order and the new. We in the international community must continue our best to try and bridge these gaps. Libyans are tired of having multiple competing governments. They deserve better. I, I want to compliment the U.S. leadership and the Security Council working with our British colleagues in getting the Security Council's uh, uh, action to deal with strengthening the U.N. arms embargo on Libya. And I'll be interested in hearing from our witness as to uh, whether that will have a, a major impact uh, on our policy. The United States and the international community can and should help a country like Libya achieve unity, security, and prosperity. It's my hope that we pursue a balanced policy and not just an expedient one. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much for those comments. And uh, Mr. Weiner, we really, really appreciate you being here. As people know, you're the special envoy for Libya, the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at U.S. State Department. I think you know that you can summarize your comments, if you will, in about five minutes without objection. All of your written testimony will be entered into the record. Again, thank you for being here. And if you would, please proceed. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, 
and distinguished members of the committee, I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss U.S. foreign policy on Libya. I've just returned from consultations with regional and European partners to discuss our mutual support for the Transitional Government of National Accord, or GNA, in Libya, whose challenges include ending civil conflict, promoting stability, and addressing the ongoing terrorist threat. Our strategic interest in Libya is to support a unified, accountable government that meets the economic and security needs of the Libyan people. We also seek a government with whom we can partner on bilateral and regional objectives, including countering the terrorism and illegal migration, which threaten security and stability across both North Africa and Europe. At the center of our policy has been support for the creation of the GNA as a unifying bridge to help Libyans move beyond the damaging period of political competition, referred to by the chairman and the ranking member, and fragmentation until the country adopts a new constitution and a long-term government. To do that, we engaged last year with a wide range of Libyans, international partners, and with UN Special Representative the Secretary General Martin Kobler and his predecessor Bernardino Leone to support the negotiation of the Libyan political agreement, which was signed on December 17, 2015, to bring about the GNA. Since entering Tripoli March 30th, 75 days ago roughly, the GNA has been able to demonstrate its commitment to inclusiveness and national reconciliation and has begun the critical work of rebuilding the Libyan state. Rather than fighting one another, through the GNA, backed by the political dialogue, Libyans <laughs> have begun the hard work of addressing common challenges. Our collective international support for the GNA has already had practical impact on the ground. In recent days, we've seen Libyan forces aligned with the GNA engage in sustained fighting against Daesh in the region around Sirte and entering into the city. They have made impressive gains against a ruthless enemy. The GNA has announced plans to form a presidential guard. It has established command centers to combat Daesh and Sirte. Prime Minister Fayez al-Siraj has stated he will seek international assistance to train and equip GNA forces for this fight, uh, which will not be a fight that will be over in merely days or weeks. The Libyans will look to the United States for our help in combating Daesh, and we are prepared to provide it. The United States counterterrorism policy in Libya is focused on degrading Daesh and other violent extremist groups and reducing the threat they pose to our national security and to our interests in North Africa and in Europe. In Libya, as elsewhere, the President has made clear his willingness to take action wherever our interests are in danger. In the past year, the United States has conducted direct action against several terrorist targets in Libya, including a February 19th strike that took out a Daesh training camp in the town of Sabrata, west of Tripoli. We've also been working to disrupt connections between the Daesh branch in Libya and the core group in Iraq and Syria, to halt the flow of foreign fighters to Libya, to shut off Daesh finances there, and to counter and defeat its destructive messages. As with our other policy priorities, achieving our counterterrorism objectives depends on helping the Libyans rebuild an effective state. While real progress has been made in recent months, much work remains to fully implement the Libyan political agreement and to achieve a durable and broad political reconciliation. With our partners in Europe and within the region, we continue to urge all Libyans to put aside their personal interests in the name of uniting Libya under the GNA so Libyans throughout the country, east, west, and south, can rebuild their nation. We further urge them to support the integrity of Libya's core economic institutions, 
in particular the Central Bank of Libya and the National Oil Corporation, whose unity is vital to the country's recovery and long-term stability. U.S. assistance has played an important part in advancing our policy, and we look to Congress for continued support as the GNA takes shape. The administration has requested $20.5 million for assistance to Libya in FY 2017. These funds would enable us to respond to Libya's emerging needs, help the GNA function as an inclusive and rights-respecting national government, and support increasing Libya's security and counterterrorism capabilities. The administration is also planning to provide $35 million in FY 2016 and prior year funds to help Libya's political transition <laughs> produce an accountable and effective national government. As part of this assistance, we intend to commit up to $4 million in support of the UNDP-led stabilization facility for Libya. Mr. Chairman and members of this committee, as I described at the outset today, the United States supports the aspirations of the Libyan people for united, inclusive, and responsible responsive national government capable of overcoming the country's significant political challenges and divisions. We remain deeply engaged with Libya because it's vital for our national security, for that of Libya, for North Africa, and for Europe, and for the interests we share. I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. I assume that you believe that it's reasonable that Libya can be put back together uh, as a unified state that can secure its border and maintain monopoly over the use of force. Is that something that you believe can occur? I believe it can occur. The, there are several things in your statement that uh, need to uh, all be taken into consideration. A unitary state for Libya is absolutely essential. Any division of Libya into parts will be disastrous for the people of Libya, for the country, for the region, and bad across the board. I understand border, the border, yeah. border control is something that's going to require work by uh, Libya's neighbors as well as by Libya. Yeah. And, you know, based on the way things are progressing at present, uh, how long into the future do you think that is? Well, the government of National Accord has made more progress over the last 75 days uh, than most people ever expected it would be able to make in that period of time. The advances that they've made against Daesh in the CERT region are truly impressive and involve a tremendous amount of sacrifice. Uh, by Libyan soldiers. Is Daesh the unifying force right now that's causing them to, to come together? Um, Samuel Johnson, the, the British uh, writer, once said that the prospect of a hanging concentrates the mind. And I think that it has been an element that has helped bring Libyans together is concern about their security uh, yeah. as well as their so uh, after, economic situation. So after ISIS is dealt with effectively, is there any sense that because this is a unifying force that's bringing people together, uh, citing historians, uh, is there concern that after that is dealt with, uh, the civil war can again break out? I think that the approach of having a government of national accord for a transition is designed to uh, produce mechanisms for getting um, services provided and political support in East, West, and South. For the government to succeed, it has to be able to provide services at the local level. There has to be buy-in in municipalities throughout the country uh, with real attention given to underserved areas from the past. That's an important part of the political and, work. And are they capable of doing that? We don't have sectarian issues here, but we certainly have divisions within the country. So is it, is it reasonable to believe in a, in a period of time that's, that matters they're going to be able to do that? Uh, I don't think it's easy for them to do it. I think they're working on it. The Presidency Council consists of nine people representing all three major regions. And um, I've seen them begun to work together and grow together into a, a working unit. 
and I think they're committed to that. Um, the constitution that the Libyans still need to build out and the elections they still need to, uh, uh, to carry out for a permanent government are going to have to uh, be designed by Libyans to address these core issues mm -hmm. so that they have a nation that they can build for the future. But given their, uh, their potential oil uh, wealth, uh, past and future, uh, they have the tools in theory they should be able to do it. So, you know, this was a case of, uh, I, I know that most of the committee was, were in a different place than I was on this, but you know, I didn't understand what our national interests were in going in in the first place. I certainly didn't understand uh, going in, decapitating the government, and leaving as we have. You just laid out a series of numbers, which certainly uh, to most Americans is a lot of money. And, uh, but on the other hand, as we know, as it relates to dealing with these kind of issues, very, very light uh, amount of resources. I'm just wondering um, what role you see the U.S. playing right now. Um, are we one of... 30 countries, are we the lead country? It doesn't appear, if you look at the resources being allocated, um, if we're the major force in helping this all come together, there's much effort that's happening on the ground. Can you share with us your thoughts in that regard? Yes, Mr. Chairman. The assistance money we're asking for uh, are comparatively small amounts by comparison to what we're doing in Iraq, for example, uh, or in many other places. Um, there, we're part of an international coalition to try and help Libya through this transition. Who's leading that coalition? The UN is essentially um, in the lead through the UN mission in Libya. Uh, the European Union is committing substantial amounts as our individual. Yeah. Are they taking uh, more of a leading role in Libya than the United States is, the European Union? No, sir. Yeah. But in the assistance area, our, our requests are what they are. Our, real, our core work over this past year uh, has been political in the first instance, to get alignment amongst all Libya's neighbors, important regional players beyond Libya's neighbors, uh, the Europeans and us, uh, to work with the Libyans to try and bring them together, uh, get them aligned instead of fighting one another. That's taken an immense amount of work, and it uh, played a substantial role in the creation of the government of national accord. Well, I think all of us uh, on the committee have traveled through northern Africa and just seen the havoc that the fall of Libya has created, the amount of arms that, that have traveled through those countries, the support that's given for transnationalist terrorist groups to, to be able to do what they're doing. That's happened. That's water, if you will, under the bridge. Um, I still um, am having difficulties um, seeing the progress. I'm glad we have someone like yourself there. But do understand that uh, if we end up in a situation years from now where a country uh, cannot maintain its borders, uh, cannot, uh, you know, have total control of, over what's happening militarily in the country, uh, that havoc is going to continue. We thank you for your efforts and look forward to additional questions. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Weiner, I certainly understand the U.S. participation with the international community in, in 2011. And it, I think, was well received in Congress, although the administration chose not to submit a, uh, authorization <laughs> for the use of military force. Uh, and as, as I said in my opening statement, uh, I think we have to act when we have a, a reason to do it, but we have to think about the consequences after those actions. Now today, as my understanding is that we have a limited number of special op forces that are operating in Libya. 
And uh, I know that the, the Great Britain and France have also interjected some troops. Uh, are foreign nations considering sending in uh, ground forces into Libya? Um, I'm not w aware of anything beyond a training and equip uh, mission center. And what is the intentions for U.S. Uh, additional personnel being used in Libya? Uh, I think that question uh, needs to be addressed uh, probably in another setting and with the participation of other parts of the U.S. government. Well, could, could you tell us whether the administration is anticipating sending up an authorization to Congress for its military campaign in Libya? I don't know of a, lib a military campaign in Libya being contemplated, Senator. Well, we, 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 have, we have our people there. You're, I, I understand the difference between uh, combat and understand the lines that you're drawing. But uh, so is, is it anticipated that you will see congressional action uh, as part of the strategy for a united front for U.S. participation in the, whatever is done in Libya? Um, I'm prepared to um, provide you any information I have in an appropriate setting at any time. One of the factors that you judge how well we are proceeding, and I acknowledged in my opening statement the progress that you've made against the terrorists, um, and that's it's been some, some, some major uh, advancements. And we have yet to see the ratification of the unity government, uh, which is a major step that is yet to be taken. And we know that there are leaders in Libya that are resisting that. So we're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. You gave a pretty optimistic account. One of the um, indicators would be the reopening of our embassy. Is that likely to occur in the near future? Uh, Senator, we look at, we very much want to have our embassy reopen in Libya. Uh, it's, that's a policy goal. We want to be present in Libya. We think it's important that we're present in Libya. Our ability to do that depends on our evaluation of the security situation. Uh, and as of now, we've not evaluated that it's time for us to do that. So um, could you before be more, we do that, we'll be back here to talk to you all about it. Could you be more specific as to what conditions are going to be necessary to, to reopen our embassy? Diplomatic security is going to have to feel that it's the right thing to do in the first instance, and then uh, other parts of the administration are, uh, would have to concur. And then we'd be, we'd be down here talking to you about it. Tell me the capacity of the Libyan uh, people taking on ISIL. Uh, what is the capacity uh, with or without a GNA? How do you see their ability to defend themselves against uh, ISIL? Well, Senator, under the period of divided government, when the government that we recognized, uh, whose house was based in Tobruk and whose government was based in Beta in, in the east of, extreme east of Libya, when uh, we had that period and there was a competing government that no one recognized in Tripoli, that's the period of time when Daesh uh, secured a presence in the far east of the country in Derna and a substantial geographic territory in the region around Sirte in the center of Libya's uh, coastal region. Uh, since the Government of National Accord uh, was agreed on in Skorat on December 17th, and then voted, uh, voted on favorably for the Presidency Council and the political agreement, although not for the Cabinet, by the House of Representatives on January 25th, 
we have seen different Libyan forces uh, take on Daesh with some substantial success. Uh, Daesh has been, was first kicked out of Derna by local extremist forces who had, some of the people who invited them in decided they didn't like being told what to do by foreign extremists. And then additional forces associated with General Haftar have undertaken further efforts in and around Derna. And most recently forces uh, east and west of Sirte have collaborated uh, under, expressly under the government of national accord through operations rooms to impressively push Daesh back out of Sirte. I want to get one more question in with the chairman's uh, permission here, because I don't want to disappoint the chairman and, and not mention my favorite subject of good governance and corruption. One of the real challenges is the trafficking through Libya, which is causing people at risk through traffickers uh, to try to get to Europe. Part of that's corruption within the Libyan government. In addition, you have a large percentage of the population that is in desperate need of humanitarian assistance, and the the honesties and institutions of government are so weak, it's hard to get that aid. What is the prognosis that we will have a functioning government that can stop the traffickers and can be available to deliver the humanitarian aid that's needed? Uh, I can't offer a probability, Senator. Uh, the government is working initially to counter... Um, is that a high priority for us? Are we, I mean, I understand that we have a lot of political problems, but are we making, with our international partners, a high priority to make sure that we can stop the tragedies that are taking place, the humanitarian crisis? Well, just this week, Senator, um, the uh, UN uh, endorsed a resolution put forth by the United Kingdom to enhance um, uh, maritime um, oversight of potential arms trafficking internationally. From my point of view, the more vessels there are in the area of Libya, the more likely we'll be able to begin to combat the migrant flow. Uh, we talked to uh, all of Libya's neighbors about it. We talked to Libyans about it. Uh, dealing with migrant trafficking in any country, as Europe has demonstrated um, uh, itself through any number of national borders, is a very difficult business, and it's going to take a lot of work over a long time. In terms of the humanitarian crisis, we've been working with the Central Bank of Libya, uh, with the uh, National Oil Company, with the Presidency Council on measures to try and uh, reduce the risk of humanitarian crisis and uh, get, uh, uh, get some traction on problems of liquidity they've been facing as a result of the loss of confidence in the government during the two-government period. And we're making some progress in that area. Thank you. Senator Berlue. Thank you, and thank you for your service. Um, I, I have two quick questions. Um, <clears throat> I really want to get to the uh, arms embargo that the ranking member mentioned, but first I want to talk about and get your opinion on this uh, potential financial situation in Libya, which I think is, is very critical as well. Um, you know, oil is right now almost all, almost 97% of their <coughs> revenue, and I know with the price of oil being down and also their uh, annual production is about a third of their capacity, if I got the numbers right. And then I look at the reserves, and the reserves, depending on the amount of outtake they have every year, could be as short-lived as three to nine years. Well, that's shocking. If that's 100% of their economy, and you only have three to nine years, and the best situation, what's the, what's the outcome here? Because you've got a financial catastrophe sitting right here in the midst of this very distressed battle situation. So I'm trying to get past the, the ceasefire and all the rest of it and say, okay, what do we do to rebuild that country economically so you can stop the fostering of this radical uh, element? So would you address the financial potential collapse that we're looking at here? Yes, sir. You've just identified one of the core issues that we're, we've been concerned about and been working on. Um, 
they're at risk of eating all of their seed corn and being left with a disaster if they don't get their acts together to pump their oil. We're working right now um, to try and get uh, Ibrahim Jadran and his National Petroleum Forces to turn the oil back on in the oil crescent. But if he turns it on, don't you have the reserve problem? Then they go, I mean, that shortens the number of years until they actually burn it all out. I think that the problem is not so much uh, pumping it out um, and losing it. There's still room for further exploration and further development, as it is um, the problem of too much money going out and not enough coming in, where, where the IMF has said to us, for example, there is no solution, no reforms they can take if they're not producing their oil. Their debt situation is already in the crisis level. They're in a very difficult uh, economic situation right now as a result of not pumping their oil. They should be pumping 1.5 million a day. They've been pumping less than 400,000 a day. Last week I talked with the head of the petroleum uh, forces and said, uh, you've got to turn the oil back on. Now he's been, he now supports the government of national accord. His forces have been fighting to get rid of Daesh. And I think that that oil is going to be turned on. It's absolutely critical. There are forces in the West, the Zintan, that have shut down 440,000 barrels a day because some of their concerns have not been met. And does ISIS, since that's such an important economic issue, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, sir. But does ISIS pose a threat to that oil production, if, even if they could turn it up? To the production, yes. To exploitation, probably not. Uh, the pipelines run uh, north-south, south-north. And they are not really exploitable in uh, Libya in the way they've been exploitable uh, in Iraq. Um, Daesh did attack the oil crescent area and uh, destroy some um, uh, terminals, uh, some areas where oil was being stored at the terminals. And that's probably reduced their capacity some. But it's um, quite limited damage at this point. One of the things that's really impressive about the efforts against Daesh in the CERT region and the Oil Crescent region is it's begun to push them away from their ability to threaten uh, Libya's future oil production. And so that's a significant development. But the Libyans need to draw together and address one another's grievances so that everybody agrees to allow the oil to be pumped again so that they have less of a mismatch between the money that's coming into their, uh, their uh, treasury and the money that's going out. Would you agree we're within a year or two of uh, in the best case scenario of really having a potential collapse, though, if they don't do that? Yes, sir. A couple okay. years. Second question. I'm sorry. Thank you for that candor. Uh, relative to the UN uh, Security Council resolution uh, just yesterday, I believe, uh, what, what do you think the impact of that will be? And, and will it have any impact on what's coming in uh, to support uh, Daesh? Uh, it's not clear to me where Daesh is getting its weapons from. I think a lot of it is from domestic stockpiles and that kind of thing. What's important about the arms embargo is limiting the risk of different international players aligning themselves with different forces within the country and uh, thus exacerbating the risk of internal conflict. We spent a tremendous amount of time in 2015 and the first half of 2016 getting regional players aligned. There are three conditions for us to have success in Libya, very briefly. One, negotiating process. We, we worked that out and we got the government of the National Accord through the Libyan political agreement by having one UN-led process. Secondly, having um, regional players with interests and relationships in Libya agree on a common course and press uh, forces within Libya that they've been working with to participate in it and to agree, uh, and to agree with it. Mm -hmm. We have gotten tremendous success in that. So that's the second. Third, there has to be benefits at the local level at municipalities throughout the country in different regions from the agreements and from the government so that they have a stake in stability. We're working on that, Senator.
One last comment. Sure. I, I applaud all of that. My only admonition would be to add a fourth, and that is the post-effort. Uh, what happens after that happens to the economy and to the people and, and the economy uh, that we're talking about so that we can minimize the, the, uh, the danger of continued radicalization there? Uh, ultimately, uh, we would like to see the Libyans develop a revenue-sharing mechanism where resources go to people at the local level. They have to improve, get the basics down in public financial administration so there's greater accountability for their resources and their spending uh, in systems that are transparent to the Libyan people and which meet modern standards. That would be very good for Libya. Uh, some of the money that we're requesting uh, from Congress today uh, uh, would go to that. Some of the money you provide us in the past will, will be going to public financial administration. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Senator Markey, are you squared away? Uh, is that synonymous with just having just sat down, squared away? No. It, it's synonymous would, with knowing your staff. I would, just I would, still whispering in your ear, and I wasn't sure you had taken it all in. But no, uh, Yeah, I, I think I'm ready to go. Okay, there you go. Thank I think you. Um, thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. Um, Senator uh, Cardin and I, uh, Senator Gardner, we were just in um, Saudi Arabia about... 10 weeks ago, and one of the highest ranking ministers said to us that Libya was going to make Syria look like a piece of cake, uh, which was a very startling um, uh, comment to come from that source. Um, what would it take for that set of circumstances to unfold, and what can we do to avoid it? from ultimately transpiring? Uh, Senator, regional competition in support of different forces so that Libyans can't come together to fight terrorists uh, could potentially lead to a very bad scenario. And that's one of the things that we've been working to counter over the past year, year and a half. Uh, having the terrorists destroy oil infrastructure and having the oil not continue to flow to be able to fund core government activities and salaries for government workers and for the people of Libya uh, would be another threat if there's a humanitarian collapse uh, due to the inability of, of uh, Libya to sustain its economy. That would be a second element. Uh, the third element would be uh, not taking on Daesh now and allowing them to gather, gain a further foothold. They don't produce anything, the Islamic State. They're entirely predatory. They live off the land, and they live off the land in an extraordinarily ugly and ruthless fashion, as we all know. So they need to grab more territory at all times in order to survive. So when you push them back on their heels and take territory away from them, it's very difficult for them uh, to continue because they need to be able to generate uh, income to keep themselves going. So ignoring that problem uh, would create that kind of risk that you're talking about. So there's the risk of internal conflict, there's the risk of economic and humanitarian collapse, and there's the risk from Daesh. The three of them are intertwined, which is why the strategy has been to get political um, alignment so that we can uh, get the Libyans to undertake, as they want to do, uh, countering the threat to all of them from the Islamic State, which they detest. Okay, so uh, in your testimony, you pointed out that in Libya, ISIS lacks the ability to use oil smuggling as a major revenue-generating resource, as it has done in Iraq and in Syria. In March, this committee held a hearing on Libya during which I expressed deep concerns that ISIS appeared to be expanding to the point where they could have threatened sensitive petroleum port facilities 
and improved their longer-term capability to move against oil production facilities in the interior regions to the south. But now the immediate risk appears to be greatly reduced, thanks to the current offensive operations by militias loyal to the government of national accord, which appears close to defeating ISIS in CERT. I give great credit to the administration, our military forces that are assisting militias loyal to the new government of national accord, and our international partners for what appears to be progress against ISIS in Libya. If it were not for their efforts, I believe that we could have faced a real risk of ISIS gaining access to revenue generating oil resources in Libya, as it has done in Syria. That said, no single tactical success is sufficient to avoid this kind of strategic risk. While militias loyal to the government of national accord are fighting ISIS in CERT, General Hifter, who is aligned with the House of Representatives in Tobruk, is positioning his forces to the south of CERT, where they are watching and waiting. Although General Hifter and the Tobruk House oppose ISIS, they have not agreed to support the government of national accord. Mr. Weiner, this appears to be a moment ripe for aggressive political intervention. Our allies, Egypt and the United Arab Emirates, have a history of supporting General Hifter and the House of Representatives in Tobruk. If General Hifter goes to war with the militias loyal to the government of national accord, there will only be further chaos, and ISIS will have an opportunity to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and will resume the expansion in uh, Libya. Uh, what are we, the U UN and EU, doing to bring General Hifter and the Tobruk House of Representatives together with the government of national accord? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, I must say that each of you worry about the same things that I worry about. Uh, the anxieties I've heard today are consistent with the things that we're worrying about and thinking about every day when it comes to Libya. Um, I guess I, in your answer, could you specifically yes, tell me if we are working with Egypt and the UAE to push General Hifta and the Tobruk House towards an agreement with the new government? Are we doing that right now? Egypt and the UAE, like every other uh, country, neighboring Libya and every other country in the region, has signed on both expressly um, and in bilateral discussions with us, as well as in multilateral fora, on supporting the government of national accord and working to get people they've been close to into the government of national accord. Uh, Secretary Kerry said in Vienna last month that the United States wants to see General Haftar be part of the solution. We see him as playing a potentially significant role, uh, but he's not gonna be the only one clearly playing a significant role, and it has to be under the GNA and within the context of a civilian-led government. Uh, we're working on that, and we're consulting with the UAE and Egypt on that, among others. And I feel we have uh, a very great degree of alignment in a constructive fashion that could well lead uh, to positive results, as we've already seen positive results of these past weeks in CERT. Thank you very much, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I don't know if uh, Senator Markey mentioned this to you or not, but uh, a couple of months ago, we had the opportunity to travel to Saudi Arabia and visit with uh, Deputy Crown Prince, the Crown Prince, and others uh, in the royal family, as well as the foreign minister and other members of the government. And one of the questions to, I believe it was the, the, the Crown Prince, I believe, was uh, the situation in Libya, the situation in Syria, and uh, when it came specifically to the situation in Libya, the question was asked, uh, 
uh, how do you think it compares to Syria? And I believe the response was simply, Syria is a piece of cake or will be a piece of cake uh, compared to Libya should this uh, collapse occur. I believe, uh, and perhaps you had already mentioned that, and I don't want to mischaracterize the statement, uh, but uh, could, you, could you perhaps uh, explain how that could be the case and whether or not you agree with comments that, um, such comments like, uh, you look at the Crown Prince's remarks that Libya is a, Syria is a piece of cake compared to Libya, uh, and could you perhaps uh, compare that to comments made yesterday by the, the president saying that ISIS ranks are shrinking and its morale is sinking. And is that really consistent with what the crown prince is saying and what you're seeing on the ground in Libya? Senator, if you look at where things were, I guess you were there 10 weeks ago, roughly? Roughly. Uh, the government of the National Court has been in place precisely about that amount of time in Tripoli. And since it has come into place, uh, bit by bit, the Libyans have configured themselves to begin to take Dash on. They have uh, secured increasing support domestically. It's not complete, but I would note that a majority of the House of Representatives has been ready to support the cabinet selected by the government of National Court Presidency Council. They haven't been permitted to vote by a minority. And so we do have some political limitations, but you have seen support for this government grow. Um, the Libyan people expect more out of the Presidency Council and the GNA than they've gotten. That's normal and natural. Uh, people all over the world want more out of their governments than they tend to get, and there's frustrations uh, with what the government can actually do. Uh, the government needs to do more, but uh, progress being made is being made on the ground, sir, um, every day right now. So I think a snapshot, pessimistic snapshots in Libya are absolutely legitimate. There's lots of grounds for pessimism. There's also grounds for optimism and real progress. If we were today in a situation where you had still competing governments, no government of national accord, uh, no political roadmap forward, no progress against Daesh, no prospects for getting the oil um, uh, turned on again and addressing the mismatch, um, we would be uh, in a much worse situation, a much more threatening situation than the one we're in. Now, could the, uh, the advances of the past few months still be reversed? Yes, the situation is fragile. We can't say we're in a safe place, that Libya is in a safe place. Libyans are going to have to continue to come together and work together to address grievances and differences for the common good. And it's our job as the United States to try and encourage them to do that, to encourage other countries to help them do that, and to be part of an alignment uh, and unity building process. That's hard to do in any country. It's very hard in Libya, but it is not futile. Um, uh, it is beginning to happen, and we're seeing some positive results as a consequence. And I apologize if I'm asking you a question that has already been covered here, but the administration's request for Libya was down uh, from $35 million in FY 2016 to $20 million in 2017. That's in, in, in State Department-administered funds. Uh, why is that the case? Uh, the absorptive capacity of the Libyan government in the past has been very limited. Our focus is on delivering services to communities, helping the government through the transition, public financial administration, which I mentioned earlier, is the kind of thing, for example, we're doing, working with the Constitutional Drafting Assembly to get the Constitution uh, pr process completed. We're trying to act as a, uh, uh, as, uh, to synergize uh, other activities, working with uh, the UN, the EU, and a number of other countries, rather than to do it all ourselves. So th these modest amounts are there um, to help uh, fill the territory where there are gaps, and to provide some impulses to, uh, to help them uh, go forward. But the core of the work right now has been political first, 
it's political security, and then it's development, and all three of those things are going to have to go together. If Libya um, gets its act together successfully, if the Libyans continue to come together, they should again be able to uh, finance these activities. But they have to begin pumping their oil again, uh, close to the 1.5 million they uh, used to pump, at least a million barrels a day. Um, and then they can uh, begin to work through a, creating a national budget um, and starting to invest in their own infrastructure and projects again. So we're, we're trying to jumpstart things. Um, but uh, the vast preponderance of the funding is, is likely to come from Libya, as it should. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, I'm, I'm encouraged by some of your comments. And, um, you know, obviously this is not an easy situation, particularly the three goals that you mentioned, including that the people see benefit. I think that's an critically important part for stability in Libya. And you've mentioned that the oil flow is part of that. You've mentioned security is part of that. And if the oil flow goes to help the people of Libya, then they see the benefit of it. If it goes to fuel corruption, they don't. If security is there to help the welfare of the general population, they see the benefit. If it's there to preserve a corrupt regime, they don't see the benefit. So I just really want to underscore my just request. And I know the administration is committed to democratic institutions in the countries that we work in and fighting corruption and dealing with those issues. But to me, unless that's in the priorities from the beginning, it gets lost as we go through the process. So I just really want to underscore what I hope is your commitment as our representative on this, that it will be clear that as you go through the process of reconciliation and developing a unity government, that there's accountability in there for good governance so that the people of Libya can see the benefits of what is going on, that there can be the type of support for a unity government to succeed, and we really can have a long-term stability uh, in that very important country in the region. Senator, the young people of Libya are the country's future. At some level, that's a cliche, but at some level, it's such a profoundly true statement about these countries um, in North Africa and the Middle East uh, that have uh, such a preponderance of younger people. The degree to which they are interested in political dialogue, reconciliation, and finding a way forward in their country is very impressive. Um, the interim uh, government, the government of national accord, has to be successful enough to give the new Libya a chance to be born and to build. And everything that we do in Libya as the United States needs to be consistent with the values you just expressed and the values of the American people at its foundation, which are very similar to the values of most Libyans uh, uh, that I've been exposed to. Uh, they say things that are very similar to what you've just said to me. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Weiner, thank you for your work in this regard. I, I, uh, I think this is a particularly important hearing um, because we should be riveted on what, if anything, the United States can do beyond what it is doing to assist uh, the Libyan people in building a country that a mad dictator had systematically dismantled over the course of four decades. 
and ultimately how to bring Libya into the community of nations with accountable institutions of governance, respect for human rights, security for law-abiding citizens, and a productive economy that contributes to, not detracts from global resource and other markets. But this complicated reality on the ground is one that has been centuries in the making. It is a uh, transactional society with hundreds of militias, competing ethnic and tribal affiliations, very competitive regional loyalties that on any single day can include homegrown and foreign-born radical Islamists uh, seeking to spread jihad, neighbors uh, simply seeking to defend their homes and families, gangs stealing oil and wealth and engaging in gratuitous violence, tribes and states of cold and heart wars against uh, one another for generations, regional actors in three distinct Libyan regions uh, exploiting or protecting natural resources like oil and water, just to mention some. So what I'm trying to get an insight is what could an intervening uh, party like the international community have imposed on these competing and conflicting groups to bring them to a resolution? We, we had a democratic process, which by all accounts produced some <clears throat> relatively free and fair national elections. Um, in 2012, uh, peacefully transitioned power from one elected body to an elected body, seated a national parliament that established legitimate government all within the first year of the anniversary of Gaddafi's death. So what is it that uh, can be done by the international community here to impose upon these parties a, 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 the ability to achieve the goals that we all collectively want? Thank you, Senator. All of the problems that you just articulated are real, and they should not be glossed over, and they should not be treated lightly. The challenges that any Libyan government faces are substantial. But it also has a group of uh, people who are patriotic, um, have some education, have some vision of what their country could be, and are distributed in many different parts of the country. Uh, national dialogue and reconciliation, political um, mechanisms, political activities are central to the future of the country and having the country emerge from this period of fragmentation that has just gone through. Um, our work is to align countries in the region, all of their neighbors and regional players as well as the uh, Europeans and us in support of a common approach to strengthen national institutions so that they can combat at least some of those threats that you've just articulated uh, long enough uh, for Libya to evolve to its next phase, supported by the considerable natural wealth it can continue to generate from oil at 1.5 million barrels a day in its current capacity, which could go up to two, I'm told, by oil experts. So let's, let's talk about that. If our goal <clears throat> is to bring other nations uh, in the region in harmony yes, with that goal, then it seems to me that's a concern insofar as that despite pledges to support the diplomatic process and the government of national accord, there have been reports that numerous U.S. allies, including Egypt, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Turkey, have violated the U.N. arms embargo against Libya, supplying arms to both sides of the conflict. Uh, and I understand now, and maybe you can respond to this, that the administration has expressed a willingness to consider loosening the embargo to arm the GNA in its fight against the Islamic State. How can the administration ensure that its allies are abiding by international law 
and not undermining the un unity government? And how can the United States ensure that the, the government of national accord is strong enough to control any arms that are supplied? Uh, lots of questions embedded in that question, sir. Um, let's start with the arms embargo. Um, we've made no findings about violations. The UN panel of experts in March, I believe, March or April, issued a report which described uh, the issues that you've raised without making any final findings. Uh, we talked to, I've talked to, all the countries you've mentioned about the need not to support competing forces but to support a unified government of national accord. And I believe we have very considerable alignment on that. Um, I was just in the region last week on these very issues. The idea behind the exemption to the arms embargo is to provide a uniform set of weapons that can provide relatively integrated counterterrorism capabilities uh, to address the threat from uh, Islamic State and other terrorist forces near term and medium term, and to do so in a way that is trackable and traceable and subject to oversight so it doesn't disappear, go to bad places, go to the wrong people. That's the idea, and the idea would be for the Libyan government to ask that of the United States and of other countries at the same time, and to have uh, any exemption get notified through the UN so it's visible, can be seen by the P5 and other UN Security Council members and by the whole world, and then as a result of being transparent, be more subject to oversight and accountability uh, for the Libyan people, for the region, and for but the world. If I may, and, that just yes, takes, the, if I may, Mr. Chairman, one last question. That takes a, 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 a condition precedent that the GNA is sufficiently strong and capable enough, even giving that process, to ensure that it uh, can control the arms that it's supplied. Have we come to that conclusion? Uh, yes, but it's also part of the responsibility of any country providing those weapons uh, to ensure that. It's in, in practice can be a shared responsibility. And I'm um, happy to brief further on that, Senator. Uh, um, I would look forward to that because, you know, uh, I uh, used to hold up uh, weapons uh, sales to some countries because I feared uh, that, in fact, they did not have the wherewithal to do that. And sure enough, we lost a lot of weapons to ISIS uh, and other, I'm not talking about Libya now, but in other locations, and we need not to do that again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Just to follow up on that, what, what is occurring relative to Daesh or ISIS uh, in that, you know, we had estimated uh, five to 6,500 troops there, uh, and yet it seems they're falling away rapidly. Are they just blending in with the rest of the country? What do we think is occurring with, with uh, the rest of Daesh? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I still have a fragmentary picture of what's going on because the situation is so dynamic. I've heard reports of elements of Daesh uh, bleeding away to the south and to the west, um, both in connection with the current offensive by forces to the east and west of CERT. They've clearly lost several hundred fighters. I was talking with a member of the Presidency Council uh, late last night about the state of play. He told me that um, the forces of the government of national accord had essentially come into the city of Sirte uh, from the west and now had geographic control of the entire territory of the west and the south, that they still did not have control of about, from about seven kilometers east uh, of Sirte, uh, that there had been mining, uh, mi mines laid, and um, 
uh, improvised explosive devices and that kind of thing, which were impeding their ability to get the rest of the way into CERT. So I'm hearing both of the establishment of potential cells in other parts of Libya and of very substantial losses of personnel by the Islamic State uh, in CERT to the forces aligned with the government of national court as they've entered and regained that territory. I'm still trying to develop further information, but that's, that is the core of what we have seen so far. Now, before this happened, we were already seeing something very interesting. I mentioned earlier that Daesh is predatory and doesn't generate um, income or wealth of its own. It simply steals it. CERT had already been devastated in the course of the revolution. Uh, relatively speaking, it was resource poor. Indeed, there were grievances among ordinary people in CERT that were legitimate because it never came back. Uh, after uh, the revolution to oust Gaddafi. So Daesh is be was beginning to run into resource constraints um, uh, in Libya, which I think were beginning to affect its success. Now, I fully expect that the successes of the past few weeks will be responded to by elements of Daesh. And there's domestic Libyan extremists as well. There's al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. We should not forget them. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's al-Marabatun, there's Ansar al-Sharia, two different elements of Ansar al-Sharia. They're still there. So the fight against terrorism in Libya is by no means over. It's going to require a sustained effort um, over an extended period. But the geographic control that becomes some of the base for the fi uh, financial uh, sustainment of ISIL is dropping away. And there's different types of dash. There are people who are core believers, and there are people for whom it may be a better paycheck or opportunity this week but something else may be better next week. What, one of the things that we typically have to expend a large amount of resources on is, is building up a military through training and making sure there's a unified force. Um, what is happening in that regard in Tripoli by either, uh, I mean, excuse me, throughout Libya, either by us or by other governments to, to be building up uh, an actual trained military force that can, in fact, uh, do the things that we know need to be done there. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the Presidency Council has been in place for about 75 days now in Tripoli. Um, about a month ago, they announced that they would create a presidential guard. Uh, they have yet to ask uh, foreigners for help on that. I expect that is going to come. Um, and they began organizing the current uh, effort against Dash and CERT, which involved the creation of operations room to, rooms to take them on, which, as we have seen, uh, has been remarkably successful, though no one should be um, overly optimistic that it's all over. It's not going to be. Uh, meanwhile, General Haftar has continued uh, his efforts to reclaim Benghazi, supported by other elements of the Libyan National Army. He's also undertaken efforts in Derna, which previously were um, preceded by uh, domestic Libyan extremists kicking out foreign extremists. So the picture is, is not a simple one. Uh, we're going to have to collectively, we being a collective, not just the United States, uh, support the creation of uniformed, uh, uniform police and military uh, that can provide security on a national basis that are still respectful of localities and the need for local security in addition to national security as we have in our own federalist system. And that's gonna be a multi-year project will have to be directed on an interim basis by the government of the National Accord for the next uh, year, year and a half, whatever the term of its existence, and then by a successor government under a, the new constitution that they'll, uh, we hope, adopt. Let me ask you one last question. We had, through, I guess, just the way we know things, we're aware that uh, 
outside of CERT, actually out away from the city, there were training camps that had thousands of DOSH people in them, and they were, as I understand it, not near urban populations, but out in training camps. And we, of course, were waiting for um, uh, a unity government to be formed and didn't want to be involved there um, without that occurring. But was there an opportunity missed to do severe damage, if you will, to DOSH while they were out away from CERT, or was that ever the case? The United States has some criteria by which it evaluates when it can engage against terrorism. And a critical element of that criteria uh, is uh, imminent threat to, America, to Americans. And uh, there are some other uh, components to it, but that's a very important one. The President has demonstrated his willingness to take action, as we did against a terrorist training camp in Sabrata in February, and as we did against the Islamic State uh, Emir um, earlier, and as we did against um, another terrorist uh, figure uh, before that. Um, the administration continues to be ready to take action uh, when that action is warranted by the situation and meets the criteria the President has set for such action. That's really all I can say. Well, I will, I will say then, it sounds to me like that, yes, there was that opportunity, um, that yes, they were in training camps out away from CERT, and that at the time we didn't feel like those conditions uh, that you just described existed, and that uh, in the interim they, they moved back into the, into the urban areas. But the criteria was not there for us to take action if I'm hearing what you're saying. Uh, I can't address the issue further, uh, Senator, other than to note that there's, uh, the Islamic State has been very substantially pushed back from the geographic control that it had as recently as a month ago. Senator Flake. Are there any other, I think, uh, any other questions? Do you have anything else you'd like to say or feel like you might have left an impression you didn't want to leave because you were cut off? Uh, Senator, I think the most important, Mr. Chairman, I think the most important thing I want to leave you with is that I feel we do have a strategy, and the strategy has been to counter fragmentation, to counter chaos by working to get Libyans uh, and their neighbors and the region aligned in support of a government of national accord to operate in a transitional way uh, to unite Libya and to bring them together in a process of reconciliation that will potentially enable Libya to build a state that functions on behalf of its people. I think the questions uh, you and your colleagues have asked me today have been to the point, and I welcome the opportunity to testify before you. Well, we thank you very much for your service to our country, and uh, we're going to leave the record open until the close of Business Friday if you would fairly promptly respond to any written questions that will come by the close of Business Friday. We'd appreciate it. You can respond after they come in, of course. Um, I, I, I would just, again, I. As I said in my opening comments, and this certainly isn't directed at you in any way, it's directed at our country, I, I felt like our involvement in Libya was very poorly thought out. A uh, legal basis that was uh, thrown out by Mr. Coe from Yale was pretty unbelievable to me that we weren't involved in hostilities while we were bombing the country, so that part to me was uh, very difficult to 
to digest and then for us to decapitate a government and just leave it there and here we are in the year 2016 after this occurring in 2011 I think speaks to, to what Senator Cardin said and that is that when we go into these engagements um, we need to at least be thinking 30 days out after and in this case uh, certainly that was not what occurred and uh, there's been a lot of people uh, tortured a lot of lives ruined, uh, a lot of uh, problems that have been created throughout the region that have been very destabilizing and has bled into Europe now. And uh, I think we can learn from this. Um, it still appears to me that we, um, we have a really light touch, very, very light touch, uh, in a country that, uh, as Senator Gardner and Senator Markey mentioned, uh, could in fact breed problems far greater than Syria by some onlookers uh, that are in the neighborhood. So it still doesn't appear to me that we've come together around something that uh, uh, has a sense of urgency or seriousness to it relative to the negativity that can occur if Libya fails. So um, I don't know if you want to respond to that or just agree with me and wish more was happening. Uh, Senator, we're doing the best we can. Mr. Chairman, I'm doing the best that I can. What we're can not, I say? You know, that, you know this isn't directed at you in any way. Thank you, sir. All right. With that, the meeting's adjourned.